0: Good morning. It is indeed good to be with you this morning, and I'm glad you are here. My name is Rich Kasky. I'm one of the elders here at Grand Prairie Bible Church. And here at Grand Prairie Bible Church, or Grand Prairie Bible Church. Wow. All right. Let me start again. Good morning. Start the tape over again, Alex. We're going to do this again. Take two. It is wonderful to be here, even though I'm not sure where I'm at. <laughs> this is Christ Community Bible Church, and I am glad to be here. And uh, I'm glad you're here with us too. And, uh, and here at Christ Community Bible Church, we are a people who are, are trusting Christ. And we say that we are trusting Christ to do the impossible. And what we mean by that is that we are trusting Christ to do those things that only... An almighty God could do. And that when God acts and when God does the miraculous, God alone gets the glory, God alone gets the praise, God alone gets the credit for it. We are also a people treasuring Christ as our deepest delight. In the Father's great plan and great drama. Of salvation, he is directing this great drama. He is putting everything into place. The Holy Spirit is the one who, when this drama begins, draws back the curtains, takes the spotlight and puts that spotlight on Christ Jesus, the hero of the story. You see, it's Jesus Christ who came, took on humanity. And then he bore our sins on the cross and paid the penalty that we could not pay. We treasure Christ as our deepest delight because he is the one who saved us from our sins. The story of Jesus and of our salvation is indeed the greatest story ever told. Now when I use that word story, and I don't mean it's a fictitious tale made up for our enjoyment or to teach some sort of morality. I mean it is the faithful narrative of what actually happened in history. What is happening today and what will occur in the future. And I love a good hero story. And I love it when the hero looks back at what they have lost and what they have sacrificed And sometimes they look at the potential defeat and then they rise up to win the day. We are in the book of Daniel and in the book of Daniel, we're going to see a similar type of story unfold for as Daniel opens up, we see the kingdom of Judah conquered by Babylon. And it seems like not only was Judah conquered, but Yahweh, the God of Israel was also conquered. But as we see, that was all part of God's plan. Before I continue, let me open us up in prayer. Holy and righteous God, we come to you this morning with humility and love and expectation. You are indeed the God most high, ruler of heaven and earth, sovereign over all your creation. You establish nations, and you bring nations to a close. You establish kings, and you remove kings. You exercise sovereign rule over every part of your creation, down to the smallest subatomic particle. You existed before creation. You were there at creation, and it was by your word all things came into being. You breathed life into Adam, whom you created in your own image and likeness. And you were there when Adam and Eve, our first parents, ate the fruit that you forbid them to eat. When humanity rebelled, you created people groups and divided by language. And you chose a man named Abram to establish a people for yourself and through whom you would bring salvation to the world. And now, Lord, we come to your precious word. We ask for wisdom and for understanding. Help us to grasp the reality and the blessing of your sovereign rule over our lives and over all of creation. Nothing is outside of your will. You rule in perfect love, mercy, justice, and righteousness. We humbly submit to your authority and to your will for us. And Lord, I pray that you will use your servant this morning and Lord, far too often a rebellious servant to declare your truth from your word. Let me speak with love and with boldness for your name's sake. Amen. So to get you all caught up on the book of Daniel, chapter one sets the stage of Daniel. And in it we see right away that the kingdom of Judah was conquered. And there were people taken into captivity. And it says in verse 2 of chapter 1, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, that would be Nebuchadnezzar's hand, with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he, Nebuchadnezzar, brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury Of his God. We see two things here. First, it was God who decided that Nebuchadnezzar would defeat Judah. The prophet Habakkuk wrote about this before Babylon even rose to a world power. Habakkuk was crying out to God for the sins that he saw in Judah, and he was crying out to God to act for the iniquity that was there. So justice goes forth perverted. Habakkuk saw the wickedness in Judah and he cried out for God to act. God, do something. You are righteous. These are your people. And God answers and says, Well, he said, Look among the nations and see. Wander and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if you were told. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. So God said, look, yes, I am going to judge Judah for its sin and for iniquity. And I'm going to use the Chaldeans to do that. And God prophesied this before Babylon was even a powerful nation. God had a plan, and that was to punish Judah. So when Nebuchadnezzar showed up years later, and God gave Judah into his hand, that was all part of God's plan. Second, I want you to pay attention to what Nebuchadnezzar did. He took some of the vessels of the worship from, temp- from the temple in Jerusalem and put it into the temple of his God. By this act, he was declaring that his God was greater than Yahweh, the God of Israel. It was a common practice to attribute military success to the power of the deities. So in a sense, the humiliation of defeat was not only for Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, but also for Yahweh. Yahweh. Except even by this act, Nebuchadnezzar was simply doing what God had planned. For more than two hundred years before, God had told King Hezekiah what would happen. In Isaiah, it says, "Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that in your fathers and all that which your fathers have stored to this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left," says the Lord. So, what we're seeing here. In the book of Daniel is what appears to be a showdown between the God of Israel, Yahweh, and the gods of Babylon. But in fact, we get to peek behind the curtain. We see that the God of Israel is really the one orchestrating all of this. He is in full control. And everything that is happening is for his purpose, to demonstrate his supremacy over the affairs of all the kings And kingdoms. And things begin to unfold quickly in the rest of chapter one with Daniel and his friends. In chapter two, Nebuchadnezzar is shaken to the core by a dream that he has. The dream is so terrifying to him that he immediately calls his best wizards together to come and tell him the dream. So while they prepare to listen to the dream and thus give the interpretation, for that is how they operated. Tell us what the dream is. We'll go back, study, and give you our answer. Nebuchadnezzar was so unnerved by what he had dreamt, he demanded them to do something that has never done before. He said, No, tell me what the dream is so that I know your interpretation is true. See, if you can tell me what I dreamt in my head, I can trust you. Your interpretation. And now if that wasn't bad enough for all of these these wizards and wise men, the king upped the stakes. He said, if you can do this, you'll receive great reward. But if you can't, you will die. See, it's like the time when Jesus told the paralytic that his sins had been forgiven. Do you remember in the Gospels? The paralytic is there and and the, the Jewish leaders are around and Jesus says to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. And the Jewish leaders are appalled like, whoa, only God can forgive sin. But Jesus knew what was going on in their hearts and their minds and he said, which is easier to say? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven? For there is no way that anybody could verify that except God alone. Or is it easier to say, Get up, take up your bed, and go home. You see, if he says that, that's immediately verifiable. And Jesus said, Just so you know that I have the power to forgive sins, get up, take up your bed, and go home. And he did. And thereby, he knew that he had the power to forgive sins. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar is doing here. He is saying... If you can't tell me what the dream was, then I can't trust your interpretation. Which is easier? To tell you an interpretation? Or to tell you what the dream is and the interpretation? Of course, it's easier to just tell the interpretation. But Nebuchadnezzar wants to be sure. So he said, tell me what the dream is. Well... These wise men, these wizards couldn't do that. And so the king sent for the captain of the guard to gather them for their destruction. But God gave to Daniel the dream and its interpretation. And the dream was of a great image with a gold head and a silver chest and arms, bronze torso and thighs, and iron legs and feet mixed with iron and clay. And it was a dream about the future and a great rock would come up and crush all of it. And you see, the gold head was one kingdom, the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar, to be replaced by another, by another, and by another. And uh, at this revelation in the dream, Nebuchadnezzar declared, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings, a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. But right away in chapter 3, what does Nebuchadnezzar do? He builds a 90-foot image of a God that is all gold. He immediately says, you know what? No, God, my kingdom will not come to an end. I'm declaring that my kingdom will last forever. And he sets himself up against God, and then we see that he is even a little bit more bold than that. So he invited all the important people from across his kingdom every people, nation, and language to attend a ceremony. And at the sound of the music, they were all to bow and worship this image. And oh yeah, because Nebuchadnezzar likes to do this. Failure to do so meant immediate death in a fiery furnace. Well, in attendance were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they would not bow and worship the image. Nebuchadnezzar threatened them and asked them the question, who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Still, the three stood firm and refused to worship the image. Enraged, Nebuchadnezzar commanded the furnace to be stoked from fiery to more fiery to even more fiery to really fiery to really, really fiery to like hyper fiery to like uber hyper maximum Fiery, seven times hotter than before. He was enraged. And when he threw them in there, not only did they not die, but when he looked in, he saw a fourth person walking among them in the midst of the fire, whose appearance was like the son of the gods. And again, Nebuchadnezzar declares, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted him, and set aside the king's command, and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. He said, Therefore I make a decree, Any people, nation, or or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. You see, Nebuchadnezzar answered his own question, the one he posed uh, before when he asked, Who is the God who is able to deliver you? But now, for a second time, Yahweh, the God of Israel, had demonstrated He is greater than all other gods, and He is supreme over all the kings and kingdoms. That brings us to chapter 4, and there's one final lesson for King Nebuchadnezzar. Chapter 4 is very unique. We know that beginning in chapter 2, the language switches from Hebrew to Aramaic, but chapter 4 is even more unique than that. You see, chapter 4 is written like a letter, like an epistle. If we were to look at some of the epistles in the New Testament where it says, you know, Paul would say, I, Paul, am writing to to you grace and peace and and the purpose of the letter. That's what we see here. This is like a letter that, that Daniel included that Nebuchadnezzar was writing. Imagine that. A pagan whose writing is included in Scripture. And the entire chapter, except for a few verses we'll see next week, are written from Nebuchadnezzar's viewpoint. This seems to be his testimony of God's work in his life. Nebuchadnezzar includes doxologies at the beginning and the end of the chapter. And it's written in first person, except for those few verses we'll see next week, which are written in the third person. So who is this Nebuchadnezzar? We've covered a lot of ground on what we've seen from the first three chapters He reigned in Babylon from 605 B.C. to 562 B.C. He was a mighty soldier and a ruler. He was born when Assyria was the regional power. And they had already conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. And they had made Egypt a vassal state of Assyria. Meaning that Egypt had to pay tribute to Assyria. And then they would receive some benefits for that. In 612 B.C., the Babylonians, along with the Medes, Persians, and others, conquered the Assyrian uh, capital of Nineveh. And the Assyrians fled, and they went to the, the city of Haran. And then in 609 B.C., they conquered Haran. And they fled to a place called Carchemish. And in 605 B.C., the Egyptians decided to come to the aid of the Assyrians. And a big battle happened at Carchemish, And Nebuchadnezzar was leading the forces from Babylon. And the Babylonians conquered the Assyrians and Egypt at Carchemish in 605 BC. And the Assyrian Empire was no more. Sometime that year, he also went to Jerusalem and conquered it. And that's when he took Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and others into captivity back to Babylon. It was that year that his father passed away. And Nebuchadnezzar ascended to the throne in Babylon. We have quite a bit of information about his early years because there were records on stone tablets that described those early years of his reign. He was obviously a man of great intellectual greatness. He regained for his country the greatness it had a thousand years before under Hammurabi. He fought against enemies on every side, and he was victorious. He routed the Egyptians, destroyed Jerusalem, transplanted the Jews to Babylon, and reduced the city of Tyre to nothing after a 13-year siege. He built a new Babylon. And the city became one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. He built great walls around it. And he built uh, with it uh, a, a magnificent processional into the city for the people who came in. He also built the famed hanging gardens of Babylon for his wife so that she wouldn't get homesick. So he had accomplished much. He was known as a great builder. And he elevated Babylon to a world power. His kingdom extended far outside of Babylon. And his power was absolute. Life and death were in his hands. He stood at the summit of all earthly greatness. But Nebuchadnezzar was also a religious man. We have some of his writings on those stones. He was proud to call himself the priest king, or the king vicar of the gods. He renovated almost every temple and shrine throughout the land. And he was very enthusiastic about his worship of one god in particular, Marduk whom he called the Lord the Joy of His Heart. He credited Marduk with his rise to greatness as emperor of the whole world. And with this came great spiritual pride. Regarding himself as a special favorite of the gods, he became intoxicated with his own grandeur. When we arrived to chapter 4, we are about 30 years or so removed from the events of chapter 3. A lot had happened in those years. Daniel's no longer a teenager, probably about 50 years old. In chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar writes to tell us one final chapter of the saga between the God of Israel and himself. I've broken up the chapter like this. Today we're going to cover the first 18 verses. The first three verses are the king's proclamation. Verses 4 through 18 are the king's dream. The first part, he's trying to find an interpreter for it. Then he tells the dream, verses 10 through 17. And then finally, he pleads with Daniel to interpret it for him. Later, next week, we'll cover the interpretation, the king's humiliation, and then the king's restoration. But the king's proclamation, this is an account of Nebuchadnezzar's second dream and third miraculous encounter with Israel's God. Although we are not told when this occurred during his reign, there are some clues that point that it was near the end of his reign. For example, his building projects seemed to be complete. There was peace throughout the empire. And in other writings, some two to three hundred years after this, there are allusions to the king's illness suggesting this occurred later in his life. Chapter 4 begins like a letter or an epistle. It's from Nebuchadnezzar to all the peoples, nations, and languages of the whole world. This is not surprising. This is typical of the writings of both the Assyrians and the Babylons and their claim of ruling the whole world. We saw this in chapter 3 when he addressed the crowd after the miraculous display of God's power and the supremacy in the fiery furnace. And after a typical salutation, he tells us the purpose of his letter. Nebuchadnezzar wanted to tell everybody about the miraculous signs and wonders that God had performed for him. It says there in verse 2, It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. When I was first reading this and studying this, I wrote in my notes, a very deep spiritual insight, I wrote, Huh? This is Nebuchadnezzar. And yet he's writing about all those great things that God has done for him. This is the man when he had that terrifying dream that shook him to the core. Immediately he turns around and builds a statue to declare that no, I'm, I'm going to win. I'm going to beat that. I know it's been prescribed. I know it's been foretold. But I'm going to beat that. And now we see Nebuchadnezzar saying It seemed good to him to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God had done for him. He even writes a brief doxology. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. But I want to focus on that phrase he used Most High God. You see it there? In verse 2, that the Most High God has done for me. The first time we see this title or name of God used in Scripture, it's in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 14, we have the account of Abram rescuing Lot and others after they had been taken captive. And on Abram's way back, he's at the city of Salem and Melchizedek comes out. And it says here in Genesis 14, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram, by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So, what does that name or title, God Most High, signify? From this account, we know that it means he is the possessor of heaven and earth. You, almost, you also might read creator or ruler of heaven and earth. It is not referring to God's role as redeemer, although God does redeem. It's not referring to God's wisdom, although he is wise. It relates to God's sovereignty. The God most high is the God who rules in heaven and on earth. Nothing is outside of his realm. God most high is the mighty, great Ruler of the entire universe. In the book of Isaiah, we have another use of this name of God. This time, it is Satan who desires this title for himself. Isaiah 14, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground. You who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit in the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. And get this, I will make myself like the most high. Satan did not desire wisdom like Solomon. He did not want to be the author of salvation for all peoples. He wanted to be like God in sovereign rule. In other words, he was saying, I am going to take God down from his throne and I'm going to put myself there. I will be the ruler of the universe in God's place. In Daniel chapter 4, this term is used six times. Nebuchadnezzar is declaring, The Lord God of Israel, Yahweh, is the sovereign and supreme ruler over all the universe, including kings and kingdoms of the earth. This is the lesson Nebuchadnezzar will learn in this chapter. That God rules and is sovereign over the kingdoms of men. But it's also a lesson for all of us. This can be a lesson for us on pride. You see, it is a sin to take glory for ourselves instead of properly attributing it to God. When we do well, is it our achievement? When we do poorly, is it someone else's fault? God does not share His glory. God says in Isaiah, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. God does not share His glory with idols or false gods or with people. God is saying He will not tolerate that in individuals, kings, or nations... God alone is God most high. He rules over all things. To hear a pagan king say this is pretty amazing. So we get to Nebuchadnezzar's uh, second dream. First he describes the circumstances uh, surrounding this dream. He was at home in his palace at ease and prospering. It says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. His life at the beginning of his reign was one of battle and conquest, but that was done. His enemies had been subdued, and he had rebuilt the city, and life was good. He and Babylon were flourishing like the plants in the hanging gardens. Then, the dream. Once again, he is frightened by what he saw. Images and visions passed through his mind, and it terrified him. So again, what does he do? He calls the wise men to come and interpret it for him. I'm wondering why he'd ask them again. Didn't they already prove that they can't do that? Perhaps he thought that since Daniel was now chief of the wise men, maybe they'd learn something from him. I don't know. Or perhaps Daniel was just not immediately available and he wanted an immediate answer, so he called the wise men. John Calvin had these these thoughts on why Daniel was not immediately consulted. He said... When the proud do not seek outside help, they are puffed up and no one can bear their insolence. But when they are brought to extremes, they would rather lick the dust than not get the favor they need. Such then was the character of this king. He despised Daniel in his heart and deliberately neglected him in favor of the magi. But afterwards, he saw that he was still in difficulties and he could get remedy from nowhere but Daniel, his last resort. So now he forgets his loftiness and speaks pleasantly to the holy prophet of God. So what Calvin is saying there is Nebuchadnezzar was so full of himself and he knew the power of Daniel's God, he would rather consult foolish wise men instead of admitting his lowly position before God. But as a last resort, he reached out to Daniel and to Daniel's God. No matter the reason, The so-called wise men were unable to interpret the dream. As before, they couldn't do it. Perhaps they sensed it was bad news for the king and they feared his wrath. Perhaps they knew that they might get in trouble if they got it wrong because, you know, Daniel could do it and he could set the record straight. Or perhaps they were just simply honest and said they couldn't do it. Even though this time Nebuchadnezzar told him the dream. Finally, Daniel came in and Nebuchadnezzar quickly told him the dream. And here, Nebuchadnezzar gives us a little commentary about Daniel. He said, Daniel came to him. And then he adds, Who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods? What did he mean, after the name of my God? Did Nebuchadnezzar still reject Yahweh in favor of Marduk? Or is this part of Nebuchadnezzar's testimony letting people know that he was, at that time, still a worshipful of Marduk when that event took place. Even so, he recognizes something special about Daniel, that he had the spirit of the holy God in him. So what we have here is a pagan who recognizes the spirit of God in Daniel. You see, Pharaoh made a similar uh, statement about Joseph. In Genesis 41 And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? A lesson can be drawn from this. When we live out our Christian lives, and because all believers have the Spirit of God within us, it is noticeable to others. This is why we are called to be light in the world, to let our light shine before others. There's a spiritual darkness out there. And we have the light of the world. Now we get to the dream. It was the vision of a huge tree that grows and flourishes. It had abundant fruit and all the people were fed by it. Even all manner of birds and critters found homes, shade, and food. The king described what he had seen in poetic language. The ancients frequently used trees to describe the rulers of nations. In Isaiah, it says, For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low, against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan. In Ezekiel, behold, Assyria was a cedar in Lebanon, with beautiful branches and forest shade, and of towering height, its top among the clouds. Even Amos Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of cedars, and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. This is a great ruler that governs a vast kingdom. It was centrally located in order to symbolize its position of supreme importance in relation to the rest of the world. It was the center of all activity and all people came to it. It grew large and it was beautiful. With a tree like this, does anybody need God? Nebuchadnezzar probably understood this was about him. And what happens next is what frightened him. Judgment was coming to the tree and thus to him. A holy one came down from heaven. My translation says, and behold, it's a great surprise. This messenger is a watcher from heaven. It literally means one who is awake. The idea here is a heavenly being is awake and keeping watch over the activities of the human race. You see, earthly kings have their own watchers. They set them up on towers. They set them up on the walls. They send them out to certain places, and they're watching. They're looking for danger. They're looking for the enemy. They're looking for opportunity. They have watchers that report to the king what they see. Now Nebuchadnezzar realizes his life is being watched by the Holy One of Heaven. And he does not measure up to the standards set by the Holy God. This messenger brings a warning to him. The great tree was to be cut down, stripped of its branches, leaves, and fruit. Yet it is not completely destroyed. Its stump and its roots remain suggesting that it may grow back. The stump was bound with iron and bronze, meaning that a fence was to be placed around it to protect it. It would be watered by the dew and safeguarded. The vision now transitions to a man, just in case you had any doubt. This man will be driven from his home and he will live with the beasts. Not only that, he will be given the mind of a beast for seven periods of time. This is a real thing that we see, I guess, even in modern times. The medical community has a name for it. People think and they behave as though they're animals. The duration of, of Nebuchadnezzar's sentence was seven season or seasons or probably seven years. Finally, we hear the reason for this judgment and sentence. It was so the living may know the Most High rules the kingdoms of men. And Nebuchadnezzar needs Daniel to tell him what it means. So, I don't want to leave you in too much suspense, but we're going to cover what Daniel's interpretation is next week. That said, there's much we can glean and apply from this section alone. So I've come up with two lessons and kind of one sub-lesson, if that's a thing. So, lesson number one, acknowledging the supremacy of God. We serve the Most High God, ruler of heaven and earth. Even if we didn't serve him, he is still the Most High God, ruler of heaven and earth. God alone is on the throne in heaven. We are not. He is sovereign over all things. He is sovereign over our families, over our health, over our jobs, over our schoolwork, over our financial situations, over our time. And everything else. How do you demonstrate your dependence on Him in the tough times? How do you demonstrate your dependence on Him in the good times? Can we trust Him when He brings us low? Can we trust Him in our disappointment? God alone chooses whom He will to mediate His authority, He appoints rulers and leaders. And yet he never delegates absolute authority. It is indeed a, indeed a great and wonderful tribute of God, uh, attribute of God that he is sovereign over all things. It is equally wonderful and great that he is a God of love and mercy and kindness and grace. Our lives are not left to fate or chance. For believers in Jesus Christ, our lives are firmly bound in the matchless love and grace of a holy God. As we, as we'll see in the remaining chapters of Dan, Daniel, our hope is in God's sovereignty. We can know that He can and will restore what is lost, and on this side of the cross, we even have a name for that hope, and that name is Jesus. This brings me to our little sublesson: pride. I only talk briefly about this, but we must check our pride. God rules in the kingdoms of men and in the lives of men. We give glory to God alone and not to ourselves. And God does not take this lightly. In Jeremiah it says, Hear and give ear, be not proud, for the Lord has spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God before he brings darkness, before your feet stumble on the twilight mountains. And while you look for light, he turns it into gloom and makes it deep darkness. In Acts 12, It says, On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes. He took his seat upon the throne and he delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God and not of man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. God will deal with our pride. God reserves the glory for himself. And yet, even in judgment of our pride, God shows mercy. Is God trying to get your attention right now? And finally, all believers in Jesus Christ have the Spirit of God within us. Can people see it? Do we exude the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Shining your light before others will bring joy and sorrow. We don't live in a world or even a nation that loves and desires all things of God. This is a world that has rebelled and continues to rebel against the Almighty. So we will have trouble and tribulation. But as Jesus said in the Gospel of John, Take heart, I have overcome the world. Let us pray. Holy Father, we thank you for your grace. Forgive us for the times we seek our own glory and do not ascribe all things to you. Help us, Father, to depend on you for all things. Help us to be the light you've called us to be. We declare our dependence on you for all things and look forward to the promises you've given to us regarding your kingdom and the restoration of all things. We pray now, come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.